No, it's not the most important question that could be asked about the many men that could be characterized as founding fathers, but it is a common one. Why did they wear those wigs on their heads? Well, first of all, we need to say that some of the signers we're talking about didn't wear them or didn't commonly wear one. Then we need to acknowledge that there wasn't just one kind of wig, you know, the very extreme barrister wig you may see in British courtrooms. You know, it wasn't the type of thing we're talking about here that most founders would have worn. There, there were many types of wigs. Some were elaborate and some were less so. And then we need to also say that as the Declaration was being signed, 1776, this was really a fashion trend that was on its way out. Although he's not a signer himself, Washington, for instance, did not generally wear a wig. He did, however, powder his hair, which was very common. Ben Franklin sometimes wore wigs and sometimes he ditched them. Records at the Colonial Williamsburg Archive show that Thomas Jefferson bought between 1769 and 1773 four wigs and a bag of curls. So that suggests because wigs were fairly expensive items, even for a gentleman like Jefferson, that he was still using it at the time of 1776. But at different times, Jefferson too preferred to use his own hair, generously doused with a brown or white powder. John Adams would not have been in Continental Congress without one. The wealthier delegates, your Lews, your Lewises, your Braxtons, your Hancocks, would have certainly not been seen hair on natural. Yet most of them, even the gentry of America, were using a style of wig that just 20, 30 years before was considered lower class. They were using a shorter, less curled bob wig, easily prepared, quicker to put on than the elaborate dress wigs of the past, the, the full bottom. Sometimes the bob wig would be combined with hair tied in the back. Experimenting specifically to get away from the old French or the old English barrister model that seemed to be too gaudy. Coloring wigs to match suits, brown for brown suits, and age was a factor. The younger folk were, you know, had a little bit more modern wigs. So Arthur Middleton, the signer, was a younger man. It would have likely had an uncurled wig with a long ponytail in the back, where his father, Henry, would have certainly had three curls on either side. Why did they wear these? Was it because it was cold? Well, it did have a helpful function for northern delegates, but it was equally fashionable in hot South Carolina, or in July in 1776, where they were in hot Philadelphia at the time. Was it worn to protect the head from lice? That's a common assertion, but it does not seem to be the overwhelming factor in choosing to wear a wig, and there were contrary opinions on the health effects of wigs, too. No, it was fashion that led here. I think we need to think of it in the same way we look at our cufflinks, full suits, tuxes, and something that seems normal to us today, but, you know, doesn't necessarily have a practical function anymore, ties. In fact, a lot of our modern companies have dropped those, and maybe in a few years that'll look really old-fashioned. So fashion and setting yourself up as a distinguished person elevated among the commoners is behind that wig. But even some commoners wore them too, although the wigs might have been made of less expensive materials. These are the top people in the country. Most are well-traveled. Some live close, but for some, this is a pretty healthy trip and a pretty big event in their lives. 
dress would be amplified. The whole Whig tradition started with King Louis XV in France in the 1650s. He wore so many different kinds of elaborate, full-bottomed, curly wigs that he kept 40 wig makers in his court to keep up with the demand. This was that large type, all sorts of colors. This trend was taken up in London and taken up by British kings, particularly Charles II. Now, he was the restored king of the beheaded Charles I, who died after the English Civil War. Charles II came after the restoration of the monarchy in England post-Civil War and post-Oliver Cromwell's time. The trend of wearing wigs continued, and in 1761, when George III was coronated in London, this was an event, by the way, that was seen physically by two signers who would later rise up in rebellion against the king they watched coronated, John Hancock and Ben Franklin. But as he was coronated, the Whigs were so elaborate that they were satirized later. In the New World, despite protests from Puritan ministers such as Increase Mather, president of Harvard University, the Whig craze spread. One reverend posted on the church door this little poem. Our churches are too genteel. Parsons grow trim and trig, with wealth, wine, and wig, and their crowns are covered with meal. That's a reference to the flour that is one type of ingredient you might use as a powder for the wig. Yet while Increase Mather argued that wigs were horrid bushes of vanity, that didn't stop his son Cotton Mather and many clergy from adopting the fashion. Wigs were also popular in the South, and wealthy plantation owners and bricklayers alike would be wearing them, though some cheaper types might involve cotton or goat hairs, etc., instead of the horse hair or human hair that the upper-class wigs used. Even in New England, the craze took, and many of those delegates in New England would be wearing wigs, but as they were shedding the king, Americans were also ditching the pretension of wigs, and the wigs you see in Trumbull's painting of the Declaration reflect, for the most part, that modern shorter wig, the bob wig, You're probably most familiar with these in the various movies made about. How could they suffer through the hot heat? Well, in many ways, colonial life was harder. This is just one of them. But there was an advantage to it, you know. If it was done well, it's kind of a set it and forget it. Get on to your business and not engaging in endless grooming of the hair. You know, seeing yourself as your hair is sweating and you're not looking very gentlemanly in a time when easy to deal with short hair, crew cut, that would have looked extremely undignified. First, the hair of the wig had to be smeared with a grease made of animal fat, then teased or curled with a hot iron and rolled in papers, rubbed with more of this grease and positioned firmly on the head of the wearer, then blown with a powder from a small tube. The powder could consist of flour, plaster of Paris, starch. The powder and the grease solidified to the point that Regrooming was not necessary for some time. That's the one advantage to the wig. And, you know, the other side, of course, is that itch that I'm sure occurred. Every time you wear it, you need a fresh dusting of powder, of course. If you had an ill-fitting wig, if the wig looked out of place, if it was made of cheap ingredients, all of these things was violating a rule of gentility in the 18th century, making you look like a commoner. And you might be made a joke. If you had a sudden movement, like a sneeze or a jerk of the head, and you sent flying a shower of loose powder, or if you had powder dust on your shoulders, 
These are all things such as perhaps, you know, dandruff, ring around the collar today that are socially unacceptable. And you would look like a non-gentleman. No, a gentleman should know how to walk and sneeze with grace. By the 1780s, after the siding and men's wigs were already had one foot out the door, most men among the younger folk were starting to powder their own hair instead of wearing that wig. And powder would go on until the 1790s. And Roger Sherman was one man for which, by most accounts, a powdered, natural hair look would do. The most influential and important of the Connecticut signers, six-foot-tall, blue-eyed, Sherman was impressive. Taught school by his own father and a local minister, he started as a shoemaker. In 1743, due to his father's death, he moved with his mother and siblings to New Milford, Connecticut, and then opened the town's first store with his brother. Started to get involved in civil life and politics as a town clerk, then a respected member of Connecticut's upper house. He entered that Continental Congress of 1774 and never stopped being a member of that body of the United States Congress until his death. He served on the committee to provide for the war effort in Canada, and he is a sometimes forgotten member of the committee to help Thomas Jefferson author that Declaration of Independence. As one biography says, we don't know what his contribution was, but he must have made a contribution to that document in the early review process. His state had been formalized a hundred years before. It had not started as one colony, but as three different ventures. The Dutch moving out from New York to Hartford, colonists from Massachusetts and England moving to Saybrook, and also to New Haven, in addition to a healthy population coming from England to this new colony of religious freedom, Connecticut. At the time of the Revolution, though it was one now and all of one mind, this seafaring state was hurt by the various British punishment acts, and it was of patriot thinking. Governor Jonathan Trumbull, firmly in charge, elected every year from 1769 to after the war in 1784. And yes, Trumbull's son John would be the painter that would depict the scene we see on the back of the $2 bill. Sherman was one of those people in with the governor in his inner circle and was a supporter of American rights, of arming as early as 1775, forming a giant American militia to defend against British troops. It may have not been surprising, as Connecticut had already been attacked. During the recess of Congress, Stonington, a coast town near the eastern boundary, had been bombarded by the British war vessels for no cause. Bristol was also attacked. This would reinforce the patriotism of the state. Not much remains of his direct contribution. In addition to serving on the committee, helping with the authoring of the Declaration of Independence. He served on committees to establish trade policy of the new nation and currency. One comment made by Jefferson once, pointing him out when Sherman was a member of Congress. That, he said, is Mr. Sherman of Connecticut, a man who never said a foolish thing in his life. Another said of him, Roger Sherman had more common sense than any man I ever knew. He seemed to be a people's person. People got along with Sherman. He was a skilled politician, compromiser, negotiator, and he was clear about one policy that Connecticut took even more strongly than other states, and that is soldiers who fought should get land. You fight in a war on behalf of the state of Connecticut, you get land. He would end up signing the Declaration of Arms, the Declaration of Independence, the Articles of Confederation, and the Constitution, the only one to do all four of those documents. That's every major document in early America. 
more than any other individual. He is credited with putting forth the compromise at the Constitutional Convention that saved the smaller states like Connecticut from breaking away. He had already built that reputation when he was a 55-year-old at the signing of the Declaration. Oliver Wolcott would have worn one of those bob wigs with the little curls on the sides. He didn't sign the Declaration of Independence until October. See, not everybody signed in August. He was away in the Army. Walcott was the leader of a Connecticut militia group which had fought in the French and Indian War. He's appointed sheriff of the newly created Litchfield County, participated in the American Revolutionary War as a brigadier general, and then a major general in the Connecticut militia. The Continental Congress appointed him Commissioner of Indian Affairs, and he was elected Lieutenant Governor of Connecticut in 1787, then became governor upon the death of Samuel Huntington. He was re-elected to the position and died in office the age of 71 in Farmington, Connecticut. His son, Oliver Wolcott Jr., served as Secretary of the Treasury under Presidents George Washington and John Adams, and like his father, served as Governor of Connecticut. During the period when he could not serve because of his army duty or some accounts have illness, Walcott was replaced by a Connecticut delegate, William Williams. He was the owner of a retail store in Lebanon, Connecticut. He's a supporter of independence with a big in with Governor John Trumbull. He was married to his daughter. He was a theology student as well, but had discontinued his studies, and in 1776, he was preaching for independence. William Williams and Oliver Wolcott both signed the document at different times. Williams seems to have followed the New England preaching tradition of eschewing the Whig as an unneeded vanity. Portraits appear with him with none, although some have him with a small bob. According to one account, in 1776, the military affairs of the colonies became less than sunny. The Council for Safety in Connecticut was called to sit at his hometown of Lebanon. Two of the members of this council, William Hillhouse, Benjamin Huntington, quartered with him. They said, things don't look very good. The British might win. This is the end of 1776. Well, William Williams said, with great calmness apparently, if the British succeed, it's pretty evident what will be my fate. I have done much to prosecute the contest, and one thing I have done, which the British will never pardon, I have signed the Declaration of Independence. I shall be hung. He was not, and he made a big commitment in helping to supply the army, applying his knowledge from having run a retail store. At the commencement of the war, it is well known, there was little provision made to support an army. No public stores, no arsenals filled with instruments of war, and no clothing. For many articles for the, to equip the army, you had to go to private citizens. Selectmen, councilmen in many towns of Connecticut volunteered their services and obtained those articles. William Williams was one of them and provided 8,000 blankets to the soldiers of the Continental Army. Also secured weights of clocks to make bullets. After the Revolution, later in his life, he pursued his ideal career path and became a fire and brimstone preacher. We began discussing wigs, and it's often difficult to tell who wore them and who didn't at times, who would have been wearing one at the signing and who wouldn't. We do know that Benjamin Rush, on-the-rise physician and signer from Philadelphia, was one of those modern types who wanted to see the gentle tradition phased out of the new nation they were creating. While it's likely he wore a wig at those formal times, he felt that such gentlemen like customs were not what a new nation founded on the Enlightenment, founded on science, should be about. Here's what he said. The profane and indelicate combination of extravagant ideas improperly called wit and a formal and pompous manner 
whether accompanied by a wig, a cane, or a ring, should all be avoided, and is as incompatible with the simplicity of science and the real dignity of a physic. Physic he was, 32 at the time of signing. When he signed, the declaration had already been ratified. He added his name to the list. An elegant, ingenious body, a sprightly fellow, said John Adams, though too much of a talker to be a deep thinker, he thought. In 1768, he had been brought to London by a friend and went to view the king's throne. This had an impact on his life. He had an emotional experience, a feeling that he was on sacred ground, and he actually kind of liked it for a few moments. He asked his friend, could he sit upon the throne? And then, as Rush's account goes, I gazed upon the throne for some time with emotions I could not describe. But when he got home, he thought about it. He analyzed it scientifically and realized that his emotions were part of the problem. I was seized, he said, with a kind of horror. He hated to the degree which everyone, including himself, had been all caught up with thrones and kings and did not think enough about their fellow countrymen. He was an avid reader, reader of Enlightenment works, a man who felt America was better because, for the most part, Americans were working and did not see a goal of confining themselves to gentlemanly leisure, to not working. He was an important signer, but he earned his true fame after that. In 1793, the time that Philadelphia was the seat of the United States government, a yellow fever epidemic hit the capital city. How did most doctors react? They fled. Out of 35 in the city, all but eight doctors had fled. Rush was one that stayed and treated as many patients as he could. His method of bleeding patients was controversial, but it worked in many cases. Some patients died. Many others got relief. He also had herbal treatments. Calomile was another treatment that he used. Despite offers, especially from wealthy sufferers, for large amounts of money to treat their ailing patients, Rush would only take his normal doctor's fee from anyone. Adams saluted him. He is worn weary with his exertions, Vice President Adams told his wife, but he is still agreeable and cheerful. After the yellow fever epidemic, Rush became a preeminent doctor of medicine. By early 1812, he had 430 students. He was teaching most of the doctors in America. During the war, he served as a general of military hospitals. And Rush would be the founder, really, of American medicine. But he would play a final role in American history by linking two great friends together. After telling both Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, who he both spoke with, who were not really talking. There was a lot of partisan politics in their day. Now it's 1811. Neither of them are president anymore. And he told both of them, look, I had a dream that two ex-presidents would begin talking to each other again as a sign of the unity of our country. He told this to John Adams, and John Adams said, oh, come on now, why are you making such a big deal, Rush? I am simply not talking to Jefferson because there's just simply been no time. And John Adams said, there can be no truce where there has been no war. Rush took that, went to Jefferson, and Jefferson said he was always very fond, never lost his fondness of Adams. And so, pushed by Benjamin Rush, John Adams made the first move, writing a letter to Thomas Jefferson in 1812, enclosing a book from his son John Quincy, who Jefferson was very fond of. Jefferson wrote back immediately, and a fabulous correspondence began. A correspondence... I want to thank you for listening for, to this podcast. If you like They Signed, the signers of the Declaration of Independence, please uh, give us a comment in iTunes. 
If you like this program, you may like my other program, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. That's at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. And I do believe that next we're going to get to the signer who signed the largest.